Today's scripture reading is from Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Passage in just a moment, but I I do want to take a moment and say thank you for what has been, what seems to me at least, a, a pretty short time. It wasn't that many months ago that we were just beginning to get acquainted and, um, Sandy and I have loved our time with you. You've, you've actually shared with us uh, a couple of very significant uh, family milestones. You helped us celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary, and uh, we were also here uh, when our uh, oldest grandson was married. When you guys get to that stage, you'll realize that's huge. And uh, I have to say, I have loved working with Dwayne. Um, what a <clears throat> what a gift that has been to to really be a team uh, serving with him. Uh, and you know Dwayne will be hearing later today, actually, of his own calling to um, move to Asheville. Um, Rachel, uh, you've been a delight to, to work with. I don't think we could have done it. I know we couldn't without you. And Jeff, uh, what, a, what, a, what a wonderful staff you've got here, I want to tell you. Uh, I was realizing the other day, our staff meetings, it seemed to me, kept getting longer and longer and longer. And the reason was not that we had that much business to do. We just had fun fun together and talking over things. So uh, I've, I've loved that part of it, and um, and we, we move on um, with a, a sense of joy and, full, and accomplishment uh, being with you and terribly excited about the future of uh, liberty. And uh, you will be seeing us... I'm sure from time to time. Um, today's actually a poignant day because uh, we're actually one one year away. It was uh, uh, the 16th of January that my mother-in-law passed away in Florida. 
which, without our realizing it at the time, opened up a whole new chapter for us. We had to return from England earlier than we expected, and it was in Florida that the invitation from Jeff and Glenn and others came to be part of uh, uh, part of this work. Oh, in my thanks and appreciation, I do not want to leave out uh, Glenn and Mike and Jay, uh, your wonderful elders. I'm so excited that they're going to have some uh, assistance now, but they have been such uh, steadfast uh, men standing behind you and supporting all that you're doing. So we're about to enter a new chapter ourselves. We're actually kind of going back to Florida, and uh, I know you feel sorry for us, but uh, we're returning to my, um, actually to my mother-in-law's condo that that Sandy has now inherited and just kind of do a reset. And so uh, we've yet to be seen what what the next chapter holds, but uh, life has been very interesting for us, and this has been a really key and special time. And as I was uh, thinking ahead about uh, particularly uh, the ordination of Andy and uh, Eric as elders, my mind fixed on this passage in, in Titus. Um, and then things even came together more, and I realized this would be my exit Sunday. And I thought, wow, look at this. Verse 5 is really the key text, and I want you to, to see this carefully. This is why I left you in Crete. Uh, he's talking to Titus, his son in the faith, so that you may put together what remained in order. So here I am leaving, leaving behind my faithful uh, servant Titus, or Duane, to carry on uh, what's left, uh, a prophecy. Aha! Well, not quite. That's really not the way to use Scripture, is it? But it, it is uh, kind of a, a very happy coincidence. But, uh, but in fact, um, what I must frankly say gave me a real sense of release, that even though uh, it's not quite the time that Scott will be installed. That's going to happen the first Sunday of March. That it really was time for, for Sandy and I to, to move on. We've done what we've done because, uh, and particularly that release came with the, with the ordination of two new elders. I said, this is it's time to leave. And uh, so, so we are. But look again at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. Paul is writing to Titus, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the, 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 the focus this morning is indeed the, the setting apart or the ordination or the appointment of elders. But what I also was noticing as I was reflecting on this verse is this was not the first thing that was done. And when we talk about uh, sometimes churchy people get all excited about all the organizational kinds of things that go on in a church, and I want to remind ourselves this is not the most important thing that goes on. What Paul identifies this, you notice, is essentially put in order what remains to be done. Titus, I'm leaving you here to finish the job. But it was the job that Paul had already started. 
And let's remind ourselves of what that is so we don't get our priorities out of order. You, you really can pick up on this in verse 1 that Kelsey read to you just a, a, mo- a few moments ago. Notice it. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So the Apostle Paul, and no doubt with Titus and others, Paul always traveled with a team, had come to this island of Crete. Now, by the way, uh, we don't read about this in the book of Acts. The, the Acts tells the story of, the, of Paul's missionary journeys up to the point where he's taken to Rome and put in prison. So the sense seems to be that after that time, Paul was released for a little while and did ministry in various places and was especially focused on preparing uh, two men who would carry on for him once he passed off the scene, and that was Timothy and Titus. And so we have in this part of the New Testament two letters to Timothy and one to Titus, and they're helping helping, uh, these guys kind of get the church organized. But the reason was a great deal of groundwork had already been done. And um, it, it really uh, particularly applied to the calling people to faith in Christ. You can't organize a church if you don't have believers. And so the first thing we have to talk about is the gathering in of those who come to faith, what he calls God's elect here in verse 1. You actually have a beautiful description of this in chapter 3 of Titus. And and again, those of you who aren't following in Bibles, uh, you can look really in your bulletin because this was the passage we read to you earlier in the service when you were approaching the confession of sin. But, but let me just read it to you again because Paul, uh, as he often did, reminded the people of where they'd come from. Verse 3, For we ourselves... Now, the Cretans were a pretty tough bunch. <laughs> Did you pick up that, you know, the, one, of their, one of their own prophets? That's back in chapter 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> we think Philly's tough. Boy, this was, uh, this was a hard place to go. But I have to tell you, friend, when God begins to move, no one is too tough. No one's heart is too hard. No one can just walk away from the gospel. When God begins to move, that's the power that overwhelms all other powers. And this is exactly what Paul reminds them of here in chapter 3. And he includes himself as one of those hard-nosed people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedience, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, this is the great hinge that you so often see in Scripture, this marvelous word, but. But, when they got their act together... When they saw the light, it's not what it says, is it? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Pause here. Most of you were with us last week when I talked on this very thing. The whole idea of regeneration or what Jesus called, you must be born again. You must be born again. By the way, uh, um, I was pleased that all the books that I brought with me were taken, which I wrote on that topic, and so I brought thousands more this week. So if you didn't get a book, please be sure and, and take one with you. You're very welcome to have it. Well, keep reading. This is, a, this is the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Wow, that's, that's a whole sermon all by itself, or even a series of sermons. And, and when you stop and reflect on what's here, this is really saying when God saves you, friends... When God saves you, it is, a, it is a work of the triune God. That there is a unique way in which the, the Father participates, in which the Son participates, in which the Spirit participates, in your salvation, in my salvation. Loved and chosen by the Father. Justified by the Son. And all that comes to pass because of the working, the moving of the Holy Spirit into our dead spirits as we talked about last week. The catechism uh, from our Westminster Confession of Faith that these guys affirmed just a few minutes ago asks the question. There's been a series of of questions in the shorter catechism about the work of Christ, his death on the cross, and his work as our prophet, priest, and king. But then the question comes, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? That's huge. Jesus died 2,000 years ago. How does that come to actually affect us personally? And the answer is, we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. And it's a particular passion of mine to dwell on this point because I think we so often and appropriately focus on the great work of Jesus his death on the cross, great love of the Father, and somehow forget that all of this actually comes to life within us by the power of the Holy Spirit moving, regenerating us. Well, this is really what Paul had been doing. This is, this is, this is first. This was the groundwork that was established. And in fact, when you then get a group of people, and apparently in every town there were people now who were becoming believers, well, they get together and they form fellowships. And that's what we call the church. And you could properly call the church, right, the community of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that make sense? And in fact, in this kind of goes back to what we were working on this summer with the whole study in Corinthians. When Paul kind of was tearing his hair out with those people in Corinth because they were personally believers in Jesus, but they didn't get it that when God saved them, he also brought them into a community. And one point he says, if you remember, what 
Don't you know that you are the temple of God and God's spirit dwells in you? And when you look at that, that's not you personally, that's you corporately, you together. It is also true that the spirit dwells within individual believers. But these Corinthians didn't get it. They were off doing their own thing, not caring about one another. Because after all, I'm saved. Isn't that the important thing? And Paul said, no. Yes, it's important. But you don't get the whole picture. The point is, God has brought you together into what he calls the body of Christ. The temple of God. Well, okay. I'm just saying, this this is the work that had been done by Paul. And now he's moved on to another mission. And he says to Titus, his companion, Titus, you need to finish up. What is it going to take to take this great work of God and make it last? You're starting great. It's a beautiful picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. But but what's going to sustain it? And Liberty, friends, this is something you've got to be asking yourselves. I mean, you've got a great thing going. Honestly, for a lot of you, this is where you've met Christ. God's changed your life because of this community. Others of you have had a bad, bad idea of what church is all about. And I've heard it from several of you who said, now I'm beginning to learn what church is supposed to be because I've experienced it here at Liberty. But what's going to keep all this good stuff from fizzling out after a few years. I mean, it's very typical that you start with a, with an evangelist, with someone who comes and really with strong leadership gets things launched. That's what Paul did. That's what Jeff Bradford did for you. But how is this going to last? And I really think that the text that we're looking at answers the question. Titus, before you leave, before you consider the job complete that we're called to do, you need to appoint elders in every town. You see it there? Verse 5. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, let me say again, that's not the most important thing, but it is terribly, terribly important. Okay? If we want to see this community continue on, it will be because we have elders who are men of God with the kind of character that's outlined here that we'll look at briefly in just a moment. Not to put any pressure on Andy and uh, Eric back there, but you guys blow it and everything collapses. Obviously, uh, well, yeah, I'm not saying it to them as individuals. (laughs) But friends, if, if this kind of day that we've had together doesn't continue, that there aren't others of you who, who open your hearts to the, to the calling, and it is a calling to lead God's people. And it's much easier to sit back 
and just cheer everyone on, but to step up and join with those elders who are already working. And, and when other people say, I think you should be an elder, none of us feels worthy. But some of you in your heart of hearts said, I, I, if God would call me to do that, I'm open to being a leader in God's church. If that doesn't happen, the work that the Holy Spirit begins in building a church is not going to be sustained or grow. I think that's the challenge that's right here. Let me just make a few remarks as you as you look at this passage again. Notice that Paul says, uh, appoint elders in verse 5. Do you see that? Elders in every town. The sense is not that you should go in, into every town and find a person who will be an elder. And sometimes the pastor is identified as the elder. And, and we have churches that have one person running the show. And then everyone else is sort of either there to cherry monitor or contribute to the go. I don't think that's the pattern that's here. The vision of the New Testament, and if this was the only example, then we could say, well, this is just this, this verse. But over and over and over you see this, that a team of elders leads a church. And a healthy church should not be a one-man operation, which, by the way, you guys, is great comfort because... You are not to do it all by yourself. And that's not your calling. Your calling is to be part of a team of elders. And apparently, every town then now had a cluster of believers. And this is actually interesting if you think about it, because sometimes our image of elder is, you know, someone who's virtually had a seminary education and been a Christian for 27 years and knows everything there is to know. But, but really, the pattern would be Paul would go in, evangelize a community, and even months later, he'd come back and appoint elders. So they had to be people who were part of the church, fairly new in their faith, but somehow they stood up, stood out and seemed to have the gifts. So the, the ideal form of leadership, and there are other churches, of course, that are Baptist churches where the pastor runs the show, or Episcopal churches where you have the bishop who leads everything, and God blesses those churches for sure. But I'm saying if we follow what I think is the New Testament pattern, churches should have a team of elders who learn to work together in the leadership of the church. Some of them are stronger as teachers. Some of them are stronger as, as pastors. Some of them are stronger in other areas. And they each bring their gifts into that, into that mix. In fact, you know, by the way, the word for elder in Greek is presbyter. So when we call ourselves Presbyterians, it's really not terribly profound. It just means we're a church that believes you should be led by elders. Um, and when you get more into the Presbyterian lingo, you realize that when we talk about elders, we use the term ruling elder and teaching elder. A ruling elder, a teaching elder, for some reason, gets to have a reverend in front of his name. He's had to jump through a few more hoops. Um, but, but don't think of it as pastor and then elders, which is, which is the way I think we commonly do. The way, the way, again, the way I think a New Testament church is to be set up is elders together. 
So I'm not in any sense diminishing Scott's role, for example, or, or, the, or the pastor, the teaching elder who comes. But in fact, a, a, a man who's really called of God to be a teaching elder wants others who stand with him, not under him, but with him. Amen to that, Scott? You can say it loud. <laughs> Somehow we're going to break through the, you know, I actually teach church church government to a, a wonderful school here in the city called LAMP. And it's mostly minority folks and other people, and none of them are Presbyterians. Well, a few of them are Presbyterians, a few come from Liberty. But there are African-American and people from all different backgrounds, Charismatics, Baptists. And I don't try to make them Presbyterians. Lord help us. We're the frozen chosen, you know. Have to have to push hard to get an amen out of them. But I don't hesitate. I don't hesitate to open a passage like Titus 1 and say, Brothers, and you know, there's these wonderful, godly, African-American pastors all over the city with these little storefront churches just struggling. It breaks your heart to see some of the burdens that they bear. because the, And part of the model is that they're the king. They have to do everything. And everyone else sort of shows up. And when I introduce them to this idea that, no, I think the pattern, the biblical pattern is you need to seek out others in your church who will, be, who will stand with you as elders. That's a healthy church. And again, if they're prima donnas, they don't want that. But if they're really heart-centered, Christ-centered men of God, they say, wow, thank you. I hadn't seen that before. And so you can have Baptist churches or charismatic churches or whatever the label is who are, who are run by elders. And that really is the biblical, the biblical pattern. So I just hold that before you. Again, I say not the most important thing but nevertheless terribly important, terribly important if we're to sustain what God has brought. So the, so the key is, of course, what kind of elders do you get? What kind of elders do you find and set apart and lead? And that's the, the verses that follow. And I'm just going to take a few moments, but actually I'm going to specifically address my my comments to Andy and to Eric. This is my charge to you guys. Uh, you, all, the rest of you, can listen in. But uh, but look at these. Look at the what's jumped out to me as I was reviewing the passage is the word must, and I see it several times. The first must is, guys, that you need to be. Men who give serious attention to your personal lives. Let me just read. I'll I'll let the scripture speak for itself. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Andy, does uh, Lydia... uh, Fit this yet? <laughs> okay. It's nice to have it, become an elder when you don't have kids or they're little bitty kids, and some of these very challenging uh, issues don't uh, apply yet. But nevertheless, keep going. For an overseer, and that's interesting, by the way, 
The word overseer is, is the same word as bishop. And so a bishop, really, in the New Testament is not a separate officer. We've taken it to mean that in, in our culture so often. But a bishop simply describes what an elder does. He oversees. He cares for God's flock. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. I know, guys, that's quite a overwhelming list, but And this is what all of us ought to be aspiring to. This is the call of everyone who's a follower of Christ. Those who are not elders aren't exempt from paying attention to this. But but those who would be elders need to say, I have a particular calling to keep my personal life, my family life in order. If I'm to be an elder in Christ's church. But look at the next must with verse 9. He must... Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the second must that's in this passage is you must commit yourself to be a serious student of the Scripture and of the doctrine of the Scripture. Now, as I said, it, it, it would appear to me that so often these are... these. Men set apart as elders were fairly new believers, so uh, they didn't have the chance to accumulate all of that knowledge, but there was something about their sense of calling that says, but I'm committed to this. I want to be one of those who, who, who really does understand the doctrine. And there are, again, some set apart, particularly for that ministry. We call them teaching elders. But every elder is called, I believe, to be a student of the word and of doctrine. The great opportunities right here in this area. I just challenge you to, to set out some goals, do some reading. Right down the street here, a wonderful conference called the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology at 10th Presbyterian Church. We're in the shadow of one of the great churches, uh, really, in, the, in, in all of the United States of America, 10th Presbyterian Church. And I, I can say that because I know I'm not saying that we, you, we need to become another 10th Presbyterian. That ha- it, they have their own ministry. But let me say, by the way, It's been my privilege through the various uh, years I've been here in the Presbytery to work on numbers of occasions with elders from 10th Presbyterian Church. And if you want to know what, you know, 10th was founded in what, 1832? It's hardly a one-generation wonder. And there are lots of churches that were founded back in those old days. Now they're museums. Lovely buildings that we go into and say, wow. But one example of a church that has sustained a vital spiritual commitment through the years has been 10th Presbyterian. I want to honor them, but I also want to say I have gotten to meet their elders. And they're not a bunch of collection of old men. They keep bringing on younger and younger men, but who embrace the doctrine, who know the faith, who really are the sustaining force of the church, even as pastors come and go. And that's what I would wish for this church. Again, it's going to look different. You know that. I'm not saying that this is another tenth, but I'm saying what an example of elders who know the truth of the Scripture. And that's what sustains their vitality, I believe. 
And the third must that I see in this passage is, is in the next two verses, 10 and 11. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, <clears throat> especially those of the circumcision party. That would be the people with Jewish backgrounds. You know, they'd grown up in the church, so to speak. They talked like they knew more than other people, but don't necessarily believe it. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So I want to say to you men, you must be willing to lead in what will become challenging situations. It's not all just happiness and glory. There are times when you just have to stand tall and say, this is, this is wrong. Or confront people and say, you're wrong. Now that's, that's again why it's helpful to have elders in the plural. Don't go out and do it on your own. You don't have to do it on your own. But there are times when the, when the elders of the church need to stand up and say, this, this is wrong. We're not going to let our church go off in this direction. And those will be challenging times and they will come. But I admonish you to be ready and willing to make that kind of leadership. But I will, I will just say for myself, speaking as an elder, there is no greater privilege than to be part of the growth and moving forward of the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, people keep asking me when I'm going to retire, but I say... <clears throat> Retire for what? <laughs> um, this, is, this is an extraordinary privilege. So you guys are coming in on something that I hope will be for the rest of your lives, a sense of profound calling to lead God's people to grow up into Christ. There's nothing more worthwhile. And friends, I, I just want to extend um, my own word of blessing upon you uh, as you go forward. Uh, I really do believe there's a wonderful future. Um, and, and when we talk about new elders, by the way, we're not talking just about Eric and Andy. You're really adding uh, three elders. Scott's coming as, as, again, one of your elders, but joining together with men who've been faithfully serving, Jay and Mike and Glenn. So we, we will now have, as Dwayne and I kind of step out <clears throat> out of the picture, a session of six men. That's significant. And uh, I hope you guys have a wonderful time learning to love each other, to work together. It's been my privilege to be part in a little small piece of, of the life of, um, of this congregation. But friends, we need Jesus. This is not something, this is not a human operation. This is supernatural. This is of God. And so we need to continually feed our souls on Jesus as, as individuals and as a church community. So what a privilege God has given us in this communion meal to be reminded that this is Jesus' church and he's among us and he's at work. So let us now close out our time by coming now to this uh, the sacred communion. And uh, it will be my privilege to invite uh, as those elders who will 
uh, uh, serve others and serve the servers to have Andy and Eric come up as well as Jay and Mike. If you men would join me and let's uh, prepare our hearts for the communion.